Welcome to Coach House Talks. Everything up until this point has been leading here. And we get to this point in the New Testament called the Synoptic Gospels. So there's four Gospels, three of which are called the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, synoptic means general view. Okay? It's made up of two words in Greek. It's where we get the word synopsis from, so general view, an overview. And this tells us that the purposes of the Gospels are to provide a broad summary of the main points of a whole story that's going on. Okay? Sin means together, not sin as in, you know, things we do wrong. Sin means together, and optic means view. So we view this together. Now, we'll have our timeline up just to remind us kind of where we're, where we're up to with things because we've, we've covered all of this, okay? The need for Jesus, the, the preparation for Jesus, the expectation of Jesus, and now we're up to the coming of Jesus. This is the, the focal point of the entire Bible. Now, some might say, why have we got four Gospels? Well, if you think about what's going on in the Old Testament, who got big who got a big section of writings over here? Shout his name. Moses, well done. Who became the first king? Or oh, second king? David. Who, who took hope from David? He had a big load of writing about him as well. Solomon. So you can see when people are important, they get a whole load of stuff devoted to them. Jesus gets four books. Four books on Jesus. So he's telling you, so he's telling you this is the main focus, everything we've been coming up to, to this point, leads to, points to Jesus. But who is he? What has all of that stuff been saying? What's Isaiah been saying, as Steve read out this morning? What is going on here? So just as we've viewed the Old Testament in its wider context of the overall picture, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke provide us with a similar and related view of Jesus' life, okay? In order for us to see the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to his people, the Jews, the covenant promises that have been going on all the way through, all the way up to the New Testament, God's been saying, I am going to send you a rescue. I am going to send you somebody who will save you. Your Messiah. Somebody that is going to rescue you from this cycle of sin that you have been stuck in for so, so long long. Here he comes and his name is Jesus. Now synoptic with regard to the gospels also means that they tell us a similar story. Okay we can take the the three gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke and we can look at them and see that they contain lots of information which is similar. Same stories, same accounts. There's some differences but in the main these three Gospels contain a whole load of stuff which is very similar. They have slightly different emphasis on why these things are given or the view that's been given. on, and It's dependent upon the audience that that particular book is aimed at or intended for or the view that the writer of the Gospel intends us to see about the character or who Jesus is in their eyes. Okay? All the way through the Old Testament, we have seen God's faithfulness to a wretched human 
race. And in particular, to the people that God chose to represent him. The Israelites, or as they became known, the Jews. We also see God's repeated promise of a saviour or a messiah. All the way through. The great rescuer. Now after the close of the Old Testament and a period of 400 years where God does not speak directly to his people, doesn't speak by a prophet, doesn't come to them in the ways that he's come to them and all the way through here, he's been speaking, he's been telling them, he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, he spoke to Moses, he spoke to the prophets, he spoke to the king. You get the picture. All of a sudden, silence. Nothing. Not a jot. Not a prophet coming to speak. Nothing. Just a void. Where has this good news disappeared to? Now don't be fooled in thinking that in this 400 year gap, nothing happened. Because we can read our Bibles, can't we? And go, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about. And then all of a sudden we go, we just jump from the end of Malachi and we go, oh, we'll start Matthew. And it's just like nothing's happened. We kind of have this idea that there's a gap. 400 years. I mean, that's four or five generations, yeah? So you might be fooled into thinking that nothing has happened for God's people. That it's just been this void in history that there's nothing to write about, so we won't write anything about it. But actually, the Gospels or the Bible tells us about God's interaction with his people and the promises for us. So in that 400 years, something else is happening. And it hasn't been a 400-year period of nothingness. So during this period between Malachi and the Gospels, which means good news, the means by which this news could be spread was being formed. The whole world was changing in this 400 years. Everything was changing. Culturally, everything turned on its head. Empires came and went. Many of you at school will remember lots of stuff in this history period that you'll have been taught about the Greek Empire maybe. Comes and goes during this 400 year period. The Romans are now on the scene when Jesus comes into this world. Alexander the Great, he has loads of history, loads of things we know about in the 400 years of silence in the Gospels or in the, in the Bible. So when we left our journey through the Old Testament, the Jews had been allowed out of captivity, but they were under the rule of the uh, Persian Medes. Now it's important to note that the ways of worship also changed dramatically. The temple had been kind of taken away but rebuilt. And if you remember just the very end of the Old Testament, you'll hear that Malachi is saying, look, the, it's in ruin. What are you doing? You've done, you want to build this temple, but your hearts are still not right because you're spending all of your time on yourselves. You've still not learnt the lesson of the Old Testament that it should be about your heart turning to God. And even at the close of the Old Testament, God's people are still failing in that one aspect of their lives. So the whole kind of way that they worship has changed. Now teaching was now done in the local synagogues. 
So synagogues rose up around this time. Before this, you know, we don't go to the synagogue in the Old Testament. We go to the temple. Okay? There's still the temple, but now the synagogues are more local. We go to the synagogue, and what do we go to the synagogue for? We go to the synagogue to learn and be taught about the Old Testament and the Torah and the law. We are taught it now. So we sit in smaller groups, and we are taught it. We don't, no longer do we go to the temple and recite it. We're now taught what it's supposed to mean to us. And that's the start of the synagogues. And that's what was happening. So teaching had changed. We say today that we mustn't simply adapt to culture, which I kind of agree to, because you know, there's too much out there that we don't want to come into the church that would not be acceptable according to God's promises and ordinances and who God is. However, the years between the Old and the New Testament, they brought about huge cultural shifts, and it shaped the landscape that Jesus inhabited. Culture should change the how we focus on a subject rather than changing the subject matter altogether. Okay? So how we worship, what we do, and how we do things should reflect inclusivity in terms of being able to bring people in to come under the words of the gospel. However, the gospel should not change. God does not change. Now, the predominant language in the New Testament what is it? What language is the New Testament? In the New Testament? Greek. What was it in the Old Testament? Hebrew. So something's changed. So between that 400 years, Hebrew's been kind of pushed to the side a little bit. And now the predominant language in the New, in the New Testament is Greek. So by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament's already been translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, okay? It's a big long word, but that's the first time I'm going to say it and the last time I'm going to say it. And even Jesus, it's important to recognize this, even Jesus quoted from this version in Greek. Not, as some of us would believe, from the King James Version, which actually came a long time afterwards. But the Greek influences are still felt in the world today. Philosophy, the promotion of self, very Greek, okay? And it starts to turn on its head the kind of cultural view that the Hebrews, that the Jews would have had. That, that they, you remember they had a patriarchal view? Everyone looked after each other in the family, and when somebody died, you took on the responsibility of the person that they were looking after and so on and so forth. That's your Old Testament kind of, that's the flow of life in the Old Testament. By the time we get to the Greeks, it's very much about ah, better yourself. Better yourself. And I think we still come under that a great deal today. It's about ourselves and we don't really care about our families too much. Which is why it's great when we celebrate things like 60th wedding anniversaries and 50th wedding anniversaries and longevity in marriages and things. Because that's getting less and less. Because the more we think about self, we stop thinking about people that God brings alongside us as gifts for us and to complete us. By the time of Jesus, the world's changed again. And the new kids on the block were the Romans. What have the Romans ever done for us? Might be the cry. Well, actually, quite a lot. 
wrong. <laughs> they didn't build roads. So, put your hands up if you thought the Romans built all the roads and they were responsible for all the roads. Okay, the Greeks brought the roads. So the main trade routes to the Orient and the Middle East and everywhere else were the Greeks. But the Romans perfected it. Okay? So the Romans are known for the straight roads in the UK, in Britain. You know, the big straight roads for getting all the centurions to one place to the other. They perfected these trade routes that the Greeks had already put in place. So, yes, they perfected the roads, but they weren't responsible for the roads. But these roads that they perfected, they became the main thoroughfare for getting the gospel out to the world, to the known world. So in this 400 years, God may have been silent, but he definitely wasn't idle. Because we all know that God uses us and circumstances and people around us to affect what we will eventually hear and eventually devote our lives to. God does lots of different things all at the same time. So the Gospels and the New Testament as a whole were written under the auspices of Roman rule. Now, this should give you a clue sometimes as to how information is written down. They're under rule, which actually they don't like. So they're going to say some stuff that the rulers are not going to like. So you better tone it down or at least change the way you're saying it to disguise it maybe a bit. And so some of the language and some of the things that we read in the New Testament, they, you must remember that it's real, it's, they are saying these things under a dominating imperial force. And that's nothing to do with Star Wars. It's just the fact there was a Pax Romana. Okay, let's keep the peace. And so you, you don't want to go out of turn. You don't want to upset your rulers. You don't want to upset those that are in authority over you. Even Jesus says, don't upset the authorities over you, doesn't he? Believers in Jesus were not tolerated as they were deemed to have no respect for who the Romans said was your king over you, which was Caesar. The Christians were going, well, Jesus is our king. And that brings you in direct conflict with somebody who says, no, you have no king other than Caesar. The Gospels and the New Testament, therefore, are given to us to show us the promises that God has to his people, but more than that. You see, the Gospels start to spread out the good news of Jesus to a wider audience. It's already going wider before we get into Acts and before we start moving into the churches in the, in the regions around, it's already starting to spread. How do we know that? Well, because one of the writers wasn't even a Jew. One of the writers of the Gospels was a Gentile. And he wrote a, an account of Jesus to a Gentile audience. So we've got this wider context of God's word coming in to the world. Now, is that different to what it was in the Old Testament? No, is the answer. So even the law provided for people from the outside to be looked after and be brought into. Remember Ruth? Remember Rahab? 
we have lots of illustrations even in the Old Testament of people who come out from out or come in from the outside. And in fact, I would say that entirely the Bible is about bringing people on the outside in. And that's why we have so, so much grace and, and, and things that we would consider, you know, we're thankful for it because actually we know deep down in our heart of hearts, we should have been on the outside. But God in his grace and his mercy has brought us into the inside. So, going back to this Roman occupation, this Roman rule that, these, that the most of the, well, all of the New Testament was written under, The New Testament was written with a keen eye on the rulers of the day. But it was also there to uncover false teaching and to come against false teaching that had risen from various groups that that were pushing their own agendas. So it's worth noting a few as they crop up from time to time again as Jesus interacts with them. So you will know quite a few of these phrases. Pharisees, good old Pharisees. We read a lot about them in Scripture. As you go through the Gospels, they will come onto the scene over and over again. But who are they? Well, the Pharisees, these are the guys, they will call themselves the legal guardians of the law. Okay, so we'll take what Moses wrote, we'll take the Torah, and we will guard it with our lives. It is sanctified. It is, cannot be added to, well, I say it can't be added to, they added to it greatly. But they would take the law and say, this is what you need. This is it. They would fail to see that the law is actually pointing to God's standards and that all the way through the Old Testament, God's promising something else. Something of great value. Something that's buried deep within it. Remember the parable of the, I wasn't going to say this, but you remember the parable of the, the field with a, something of great worth, the treasure of great worth? There's a little bit added on to the end of that where Jesus says, if the teacher of the law comes to know me and makes disciples, he's telling you that the treasure is there in plain sight throughout all of the Old Testament, if you care to see it. And if you do see it, you'll give up everything for it. You will want to own it. So these Pharisees are the legal guardians of the law. They feel it's their duty to uphold the written law in every single way. Now, if you wanted to shirk your responsibilities, these were the guys who would haul you before the standards of the Torah and they would deal with you very harshly. They will rook up against Jesus time and time again because Jesus adapts the spirit of the law as it was actually intended rather than the legalistic rules that they had adopted and added to. Okay, so that's really interesting and it's really important to note that every time Jesus comes up against Pharisees, this is kind of what's going on. Okay, Jesus is trying to show you what the spirit of the law is intended to do. Now the Sadducees, another group that you will come up come up against in the, in, the, in the Gospels. They're less inclined to impose the letter of the law, so they're a bit more freer. Rather, they have regard for the truth of it, but they're more inclined to make rational decisions based on circumstances. In other words, they'll take the law and they'll go, well, how does that affect me now? It's a bit like we do, actually. You know, do we take the law and do we follow it to the umpteenth letter? Well, no, otherwise I'd be in hospital, having lots of things done to me, and that I wouldn't want to be done to everybody. But anyway, 
But we don't follow the letter of the law. We follow the spirit of the law. Sadducees, they kind of were more inclined to that way of thinking. But they didn't believe in the supernatural. Okay, so they didn't believe that the spirit could lead you. They didn't believe that the spirit could actually interact with you on a day-to-day basis, which we do believe. And because they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in the resurrection either. So they've got a big problem, which made them sad, you see. It's it's an old joke, but it's a good way of remembering it, okay? If you want to know why the Sadducees are sad, it's because they don't believe in resurrection. Deserve better than that. Come on. Anyway, the Sadducees were political animals. You've got to understand this as well, okay? They would be doing everything they could to keep the status quo. Right, so you know, we've got Romans and they're ruling over us and what we don't want to be doing is upsetting them. So let's play politics and let's keep everybody in their place. Let's keep the peace. So Jesus was going to be viewed as somebody who, oh, he was the opposite. Let's come and upset the authorities. Let's upset the status quo. Let's turn the world on its head. So the Sadducees are not going to be very happy with him either. And then you add this, or you add to this, mixed groups like the Samaritans. They were Jews from the Old Testament days, who, were, when they were taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they intermarried with them, and they kind of made this strange mix and concoction of Jewish beliefs and pagan beliefs that was given to them by the Babylonians. And that's why they were hated so much by the Jews. So when you read things like the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, you've got to understand why there's this tension between them. It's because the Jew was going, no, we need to follow the law in all of its capacity. But the Samaritans are going, well, we're going to break the law because we're going to intermarry with somebody and we're going to take on their pagan release. So to the Jew, that's very much chalk and cheese. Okay? So it's, it, that, that's why the Samaritans, are, when they talk about the Samaritans, understand, and understand where Samaria is as well when Jesus walks through Samaria, whereas everyone else is walking around it. So there's lots of things that you will see as you read the Gospels with this information to light, that the things that are happening. Jesus walks through Samaria, whereas the, Jews, the disciples are going, no, let's walk around it. We don't want to go into Samaria. But Jesus went, no, I've got business in Samaria. I've got business with Samaritans. And then we've got another group, the scribes and the teachers of the law. You'll read about them all the time as you read the Gospels, who by their very title, they wrote stuff down to teach each other, but often with a very legalistic bent. Jesus said of them in Matthew 23, verses 3 and 5, they do not practice what they preach. Uh, Let me tell you something. God really doesn't like people who don't practice what they preach, which is why there's a lot of pressure on people who teach from the platform. Because it's beholden to us to at least try and practice what we're preaching. Now Jesus is saying to these guys, these teachers of the law, they don't practice what they preach at all. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift the finger to move them. Everything they do is for people to see. Okay, so when you read about these guys, picture them. 
they're, they're loading it up around the place. Hey, look at us. We're pretty good at upholding the law. So the Gospels, they introduce Jesus to us. And they link him unmistakably with the Old Testament promises and covenants. Here is the culmination of God's efforts to redeem mankind back to himself. Of all the promises that God made through the Old Testament, of all the covenants that God made, they had one intended purpose. To point to the reason and the way in which we and the Jews would come to know God personally. They were God's efforts to redeem mankind back into himself. And in Jesus, everything comes to a glorious conclusion. So why do we have three Gospels, three synoptic Gospels that are so similar? Have you ever asked that question? Other than the fact that there's four books devoted to Jesus, which in itself tells you that Jesus is very important. Why are three of them so almost identical in a large amount of detail? There's some differences, but in large parts of it, they are very, very similar indeed. Well, the answer to this is that they are all presented slightly differently, including, okay, shock, horror, including changing the order of events to suit the story they're telling or the storyline they're telling. Have you ever wondered why it seems that sometimes you read it in one gospel and it's here, and then you read another gospel and it's over here? Certain events. Certain events that make you think, well, because that one was there and this one was there, there must have been two events of that. Well, it's simply because the gospel writers have gone, you know, the point I'm trying to make here when I tell this gospel, when I tell you this story, and I want you to see something about Jesus, is I'm going to tell this story, and actually this event backs up, backs, backs up that story, so I'm going to place it there, and I'm going to place it if you look at the Gospels, you will read John's Gospel, for example, and you will read some of the other Gospels, and you think, how many times did Jesus go to Jerusalem in his life? Because one Gospel says, or everything, everything that is contained in his Gospel happens on one journey to Jerusalem. And then you read other accounts in the Gospels, and Jesus is going back to Jerusalem for this, and he's back over here, and then he's back in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. So which is the most accurate timeline? Well, we don't really know. We know that Mark was probably written first, that Matthew borrowed probably a lot from Mark, and there's no problem with this, by the way, that you're borrowing stories, because you, you all do it. We all do it. We all discuss different aspects of stories. So each book has a slightly different aspect that the writer wants you to see. For example, Matthew's focus in the entire book is to lead Jewish readers to the conclusion that Jesus is the promised Jewish king. This is shown with the genealogy that he starts with. Okay, So the start of Matthew, there's this great big list of names. Have you ever thought, why does it start at Abraham? Why does it go in so many generations to King David? And then why does it have another set of generations to the Messiah? Well, it's because Matthew is linking together through this genealogy, through this line that he's representing to you. He is showing you 
that Jesus is rooted in his ancestry to the Jewish patriarchal father of Moses. In other words, Jesus is the culmination that started with Moses. And he is the promised son of David. In the list, David is the only one that's predominantly called and described as King David, even though there are other kings in the list. It gets to David in the middle, it's King David. There is something that Matthew wants his readers to see. King, 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 Jewish King. And here's Jesus, your Messiah, the promise. Mark, however, dispenses with all of that. Mark's straight into the action. Mark's really fast and furious. It's one of those quick high-energy, fast-paced story of Jesus. It's probably the earliest of the writings, as I said. But it's written with a very Gentile audience in mind. So it's high action. It's very quick. It's just, it moves on at a pace, and some of the stuff that's in there is actually quite difficult to, to take on board. But he takes time to explain Jewish traditions that aren't explained in the other Gospels. Because he's writing it to a different audience. He's saying, right, you Gentiles, I want you to understand why this is a problem. And sometimes we will read something in Matthew or Luke and we'll go, oh, that's interesting that, that they reacted that way. I wonder, but we probably never go, I wonder why. Well, Mark goes, well, you are going to wonder why because as a Gentile, you're not going to understand all of these things that are going on. So I'm going to have to explain some of it. For example, take Mark 7 verse 2. It says that they, they noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. Now, he doesn't just leave it there. He then goes on with this explanation of why this ritual is seen to be wrong by the people viewing it. Okay? So he doesn't, look, some, of the, some of the other Gospels would just go, well, that, that's enough. You know the information because you're Jewish. You'd understand that, wouldn't you? The answer is no, we wouldn't understand that unless we actually knew what the actual ceremony was about. So he goes on to explain it. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions that they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So Mark goes to tell us why it's being viewed as being wrong. Okay? Now, Luke's gospel is presented as a solid collection of eyewitness accounts, reliable sources, to which Luke adds his own carefully considered thoughts in order to prove to his audience, to, and we know his audience because he tells us, this person called Theosophilus, or whatever his name is, okay? but he tells you what the audience is. We don't know who this person is, there's lots of theories, but he tells us, I'm writing in order to convince my friend of the truth of the gospel. And in order to do that, I'm going to take all of these reliable sources. I'm going to put them together. I'm going to add my own thoughts. I'm going to collect information. You know, he's, he's a, great, a great collector of stuff. Like Solomon was a collector of wisdom. Luke goes, I'm going to collect facts. I'm going to gather as much information as I can. And I'm going to compile it all together and make a compelling argument that Jesus is the Messiah. He's also trying to tell us, because Luke also contains a genealogy, but it doesn't go to Abraham. Where does Luke's genealogy go to? It goes to Adam. So have you ever thought, why does he go to Adam? 
Why does his genealogy go to Adam, but Matthew's only goes to Abraham? Well, it's because Luke's trying to make another point. And this point is this. Adam was a man. And Jesus was a perfect man. And a perfect man was needed to be a sacrifice for God to bring us, fallen man, into relationship with God again. So Luke's predominant kind of thrust as he writes things through is that I want you to see that Jesus is God in man. The perfect man. Now Luke goes on to write Acts, so we'll consider his writings a bit more then. And John's gospel is different entirely to the first three, and Steve's going to deal with that next week. But in essence, spoiler alert, John's headline is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now the amazing thing is that unlike the Old Testament, where thousands of years are contained within the collected works, all of the New Testament, all of it, every single last written word that we have in the New Testament was gathered and collected and written down within 30 to 60 years of Jesus' life. The whole lot. Now the reason I'm telling you that is it tells you how reliable the information is. It tells you how reliable the source material that's been collected and verified within lifetimes is. Lots of us will remember stories of the war. I don't because I wasn't there, but I can tell you quite a lot about the war. Why can I tell you that? Because generations above me have told me about the war. And it's quite fresh. In years to come, unless we keep telling these people, it's why Remembrance Day is so important, unless we tell people what's been going on, that will just fade because the connection is lost. So the New Testament is written within a very short period of time. But it doesn't mean because of that there's no difficulties in them. Okay? And we do have difficulties that are contained within the New Testament. So we probably should make a note of one or two that we see in the Gospels that people have tried to use to discredit their reliability. So I'm going to try and make this understandable. So don't shout this out, but put your hand up if you can identify the person who welcomed you on the door this morning when you came in. Very good. Very good. Okay. What color coat did they have on? Put your hand up if you know. One person. Two. What color shoes did they have on? Can you see the difficulty? We all take in information in different ways. We all kind of take in stuff that our eyes see. And if, if I was to tell you, ask you to write a report of the person who greeted you on the door this morning, some of you would know the name, so you'd be able to write the name down. Some of you wouldn't be able to know the name, so you'd write down maybe the characteristic that stood out to you. Or you might describe what they were wearing, or so on and so forth. But each account would be slightly different of the same thing. It doesn't mean they're wrong just means you take in information differently. So here's another one then. What car do I drive? You can shout this one out. One. <laughs> <laughs> Who said a grey one? Brilliant. Anyone got any more detail than that? Toyota. 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 It's a hybrid. <laughs> oh, look at that. It's got the... It's, 
KJA, King James Authorized. Big posh. Do you see the point I'm making as well? You've seen me drive this car in every single week. But some of you take information in in different ways. So for most of you, I'll say, I'm going to say most of the ladies, most of the ladies will go, it's a great one. Okay? Some of the techno heads will go, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a Toyota RAV4 hybrid. As though that's important. Do you, you see how we take information in? And, and I'll, just a word here on the way that we use language as well. I've always found it very, very strange that in English, we describe something before we tell you what it is we're describing. Have you noticed that? Whereas in other languages, what they do is they tell you what the object is and then describe it. So in French, car, grey. English, grey, car. You see, see what I mean? But that's just a characteristic of how language changes as well. So bear all of these things in mind when we come and read Scripture. The Old Testament tells you the facts. There was a king. Then I'm going to tell you his name. And then I'll tell you whether he was bad or good. Does that make sense? So when you read the Old Testament, you go, and such and such became king. His name was blah, blah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or he did good in the sight of the Lord. So that was kind of descriptive in that order. So this information isn't wrong, it's just different. We all take things in and we all describe things in a different way. When I was in the police, if you took... You had to take eyewitness reports of incidents. And the reason you take eyewitness reports and don't just rely on one is that everybody sees things and collects detail in different ways. So you need a collaboration of all of that to build the entire picture. So that's kind of what's going on there. So I remember Steve preaching on a Wednesday night once about the number of women at the tomb. Because if you read the accounts, you'll find that you think, hang on a second, was there two? Was there one? Was there, was there a multitude? How many women ran to this tomb? They're all right. All the accounts are right. But it's just specific details have been picked out by whoever's writing the account. So don't be kind of concerned too much by people who go, oh, no, the Bible's wrong because there's information it's all over the place. It's not all over the place. It depends on what the writer is trying to get your attention to or how they are processing information. But all the Gospels unite in one glorious detail. Without fail. All four. And all four devote most of their time to this one event. Jesus died on a Roman cross and was resurrected. All four Gospels, all totally united, all saying the same thing, and they all devote much time to it as well. That Jesus died on a Roman cross, and that Jesus came back from the dead. He was resurrected. All the Gospels are largely concerned with just three and a bit years of Jesus' life. We don't know a great deal, other than what Luke tells us, and a little bit in Matthew, about what happened to Jesus before he started his ministry? Mark goes straight in. <laughs> ministry. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> this is the bit you need to know. Luke's a bit more careful because Luke wants to tell you about how Jesus was conceived and he links that with Old Testament scriptures. He wants you to see that there's something special about this birth. 
So he describes it in great detail. And Matthew wants to link things into Jewish back history. So he kind of has his, starts with his genealogy. But all of these things tell us that actually the most important bit of Jesus' life is from the point he was 30. Now I was going to be trying, I was going to try and be clever and find out the Old Testament reason why 30 is so special. It's something to do with being a priest and it's something to do with the age, but I can't find it, so I'm not going to try and go there. I'll come back to it at some other point. But the biggest portions of the gospel are concerned with what we would term as Jesus' ministry. From the point of his temptation, so remember he was taken out into the desert, into the wilderness, and Satan came and tempted him. How long was he in the wilderness for? Okay. How many years was Moses wandering around? See the connections that people are trying to draw all the time. Just as Moses was there in the old, Jesus in the new, going through the same kind of stuff. So from the point of his temptation and the proclamation by John the Baptist, his preparation for ministry, to the point of his death and resurrection, the reason, the entire reason why Jesus came. And within this, the greatest detail is reserved for the last week in Jesus' life. His journey to Jerusalem for the last time, where he is welcomed in as a king and a few short days later, handed over to the ruling authorities, the Romans, by the Jews who felt so threatened by his teaching. I mean, who's, who's hauling Jesus before the Romans? The Jewish leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, those guys that this guy is just turning their teaching on its head, who are threatened by him, frightened by him. Let's get rid of him. Let's hand him over to the ruling authorities. Jesus' death, however, is just a prelude to the greatest act in history that will ever be, I would say, even Jesus coming again, it's the greatest act in history that's ever been performed. Jesus rose again from the dead and created new life from death. Jesus dying for our sins and paying the price demanded for sin. The law demands death for sin. That's one thing. But defeating it and rising again to the glorious life, disarming all the threats of the enemy, gives us the promise of life also. Life free from sin and without the fear of death. That's why our hope in eternal life is such a great hope. Death has been defeated. Our hope is founded in and is reliant upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. So all the accounts of Jesus' life display kingdom life to us. A kingdom life which is both now, as we've explained on many occasions, and is still yet to come. The fullness of kingdom life is still after Jesus collects us or we're called to heaven. Up until that point, the chink has been, the clouds have been pulled back a little bit and there's a taste of what is to come that we can experience now. And the kingdom of God is proclaimed by Jesus. Mark 1 verse 15, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. 
And as Jesus' ministry progressed, he declared the kingdom of God and miracles abound because of it. Have you ever noticed that? Miracles follow Jesus. Signs and wonders. Signs, miracles. Why? Because they are the evidence of the life to come. That Jesus changes this world and everything we think we know about it and he changes it. And miracles abound. Why? Because people need to see that where there are, when Jesus is proclaimed as King, Messiah, Lord, signs and wonders will follow it. Guess what should happen today? No. You see, all of these things, and so we need. So often we go, well, we don't see that much today, do we? So let's find a reason why that doesn't happen. And we never say no. I want it to happen. I'm declaring it. I want it to happen. I want signs and wonders to follow the proclamation of the words that Jesus is Lord and when he changes lives, which in and of itself is a sign and wonder, I want that taste of kingdom life. I know we're not going to accept it all now. I know that that can't be. But I want to see the signs that we are on our way, shall we say. And Jesus shows us the rules of kingdom life. The kingdom life is not characterized by those who show the outward appearance of following the law. He came against the Pharisees all the time, didn't he? You keep saying this and you keep doing that, but it's nothing, it's meaningless. All the Old Testament also says the same thing. Jesus wants to see those that's got the law written on their hearts. I don't want to see your acts. I want to see why you're doing the acts. No wonder the Pharisees wanted him dealt with. Store up treasure in heaven, not on earth, says Jesus. Worship from the heart. See, following the laws does not bring true purity to us. Purity, Jesus tells us, flows from a cleansed heart. Unsurprisingly, this is also the message we learn from the entire journey through the Old Testament. Worship me as God from the heart. Don't just do what I've told you to do because it's meaningless. Jesus also elevated women beyond their cultural boundaries of the day. In the kingdom life, we know there will be no classification, male or female, Jew or Gentile, as Paul goes on to tell us. So part of the kingdom of God, part of the expression of the kingdom of God is actually that all of our relationships are entirely brought to where they should be. So Jesus fulfilled the law in every way and he made a point of correcting the things that were wrong as he went. Jesus was tempted in the desert and did not give in. What you're supposed to see there is that unlike Moses and the Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years and failed, they failed largely. Jesus spent 40 years in the wilderness and did not fail. Jesus was tempted to sin just as Adam and Eve were tempted to sin, but he did not succumb. What are you supposed to see there? That man, it's possible for man to not sin. Why? Because Jesus did it. And he did it to show Adam that it was possible to correct that wrong. 
In every way where God's people failed, the Son of God triumphed and kingdom life declares that even over the grave, we will rise with him to the eternal kingdom of which we can have a taste now. Jesus is the total fulfillment of God's desire to make right all that's gone wrong in this world. And that's what the Gospels present. The promise fulfilled, the entry point to eternal life, the thing that's been signposted all the way through the Old Testament as being the way that God will choose is here presented to us. The truth, the way, the life. Jesus cannot, even today, be ignored. His message cannot be ignored. C.S. Lewis states this in Mere Christianity. Christianity, which is following Jesus, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true, then it's of infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. Okay? It's either you give everything or you give nothing. It can't be moderately important. The greatest man in history. He had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no degree, and yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, and yet they called him healer. He had no army, and yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, battles, and yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, but he lives today, and his name is Jesus. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.